Good morning again, if you will, open your Bibles to Hebrews 7. We'll be spending our time there, well, some of our time there. Appreciate the reading of the Word and our parents of little ones appreciate Bible time. That's where they're headed. Bye-bye. I think we all appreciate that from time to time. Have you ever been working on something or curious about something and uh, maybe you dive in and kind of do a little bit of research, maybe you're just looking for some little something, Um, used to, we would have to go to like maybe a book called an encyclopedia. Do you guys remember that? Do y'all know what encyclopedias are, young people? It's a hardbound book and and things are in there like alphabetically, you know, like A, B, C, and you look things up that way. And sometimes if you had a, a project or something to do at school, maybe at work, or maybe you were just interested in something, you would pull that book off of a shelf and you would start reading. Um, today, we just Google it or we ask, Siri, you have to be quiet because everybody's phone will go off. I did that last Wednesday or the Wednesday before I asked Siri something, and somebody's phone took off. There's mine buzzing at me. I have to put it off. So now we just look stuff up, but you can, you can go in with maybe just wanting some surface, surface knowledge, and then all of a sudden you find yourself in a deep dive on something. You're going places, maybe going down rabbit holes that you never really expected. This past week or last couple of weeks, um, we went to um, the Derby Dinner, and we saw the Buddy Holly story. Some of you guys have seen that. I know because I saw you there, and I went with some of you. Um, I knew the story a little bit. I, I knew the music mostly because of the Don McLean song in the 70s about the day that the music died. You remember uh, three singers, Buddy Holly and a guy named the Big Bopper and Richie Valens, they all died in a plane crash back in 1959. I, I, I just knew a little bit about that, not much. But I was thinking about it the other day, and I didn't realize um, that they were so young. Buddy Holly was 22 years old when he died, and Richie Valens was 17. So I was trying to think of something. I, I looked up, and I, I asked Siri on my phone, and I pulled up stuff, and I started reading some stuff. And next thing I know, I'm reading, and I'm reading, and I'm finding this out, and I'm finding that out. Um, the reason, you know, that Richie Valens was on the plane was because he flipped a, a coin. He, he won a coin toss with the backup guitarist for Buddy Holly. His name was Tommy Alsop. That doesn't ring a bell with me at all. As I kept reading, the big bopper... Um, was on the plane because he had the flu and Buddy Holly's bass player gave up his seat. The bass player for Buddy Holly at the time was a guy named Waylon Jennings. Did you know that? I didn't either. But I started, I asked Siri on my phone and next thing I know, I'm pulling up all this information you know, stuff that I, I'd never known or maybe just some of the stuff I didn't even want to know. I think when we come to Hebrews chapter 7, the Hebrew writer does kind of the same thing. 
with a guy called Melchizedek. I mean, all of a sudden, there's this obscure person that we read about. It's only, he's only mentioned three times in all of Scripture. Genesis 14, that's about 2,000 years before Christ. He's not mentioned again for 1,000 years, and he shows up in a little verse in Psalm 110 where the psalmist talks about him, but he doesn't reveal who he's talking about there. And then we see him here in Hebrews chapters 5, 6, and 7, um, this guy called Melchizedek. Hebrew, the book of better things. We're looking at this, and we're going to talk about Melchizedek and Abraham today. Doing a little deep dive on some stuff. This is, this is so fascinating as I started thinking more and more about this. Um, we first see him in 2000, I told you that. He encounters a man, the patriarch, Abraham. His name then uh, was Abram. Psalm 110, where we read about him, it says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And although David doesn't identify, it's a thousand years later when we finally get the identification, we get our answer, and obviously you know the person whom God designated a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek was none other than the Messiah, the Christ, the man, Jesus of Nazareth. So in order, me and this clicker have got a thing. I'm supposed to aim it back there, aim it down here. All right, did you do that or did I do that? You did it? I did it. Woo! Okay, let's break it down a little bit here. From our reading this morning in Hebrews chapter 7, Melchizedek was king of Salem. Does that sound like anything to you? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. That's the old name for Jerusalem. So Melchizedek was... Not only king, but he was priest. He was a king and a priest of Salem. Now, when the Levitical priesthood came along, um, there, there were no kings and priests. There were kings and then there were priests. In fact, you remember uh, King Saul got in big-time trouble when he took on the priestly duty of offering sacrifices before battle, and that was the last straw. God took the kingdom away from him. But... But here we find Melchizedek was also a king and the priest of, the, of God Most High. He met Abram, Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings, and he blessed him. We're going to go over to Genesis 14 here in just a second. But the name Melchizedek, it's a, it's a two-parter. The first part of that means king, um, the Hebrew word uh, where we have, Mel, I think it's Melech, and then Zedek which means righteousness, which gives us he's the king of righteousness. But he's also the king of Salem, and the word Salem comes from that Hebrew word uh, shalom, which means what? Peace. So he's the king of righteousness, and he's also the king of Salem, which would make him the king of peace, which gives us the idea that he is a righteous king, a righteous king that is very peaceful. So, I'm going to throw this thing down and stomp on it. 
I'm going to put it in my pocket and take it home. Oh, he started working on me. Look at this. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life. It's, 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 very, it's a very kind of weird thing that, that he says here. And a lot of speculation has been made about this. You can read commentators. You can read, um, again, in books, those hardbound things. Um, or you can Google it, and you can read all kinds of things about Melchizedek. Some even think that he was a uh, descendant of Noah, possibly Shem, um, that that was Melchizedek. Some say that he may be even a pre-incarnate figure of Jesus Christ, that he is the pre-incarnate word that showed up in the form of Melchizedek. I don't believe that. I believe he was a man. I believe he was a mortal man like anybody else. He was the king of Salem. But this is, this is what causes us the problem. He's without father or mother, without genealogy. It'll just take a second. Without beginning of days or end of life. In a book that is well known for listing genealogies. You think about the book of Genesis. So-and-so begat so-and-so, and he begat so-and-so. He was the father of him. He was the father of him, the father of him. Genealogy is so very important, right? Melchizedek has no genealogy listed. No mother listed, no father. It doesn't mean that he's the pre-incarnate Christ that shows up in the Old Testament uh, although that may have happened a, a time or two, but, but not Melchizedek, I don't believe. Without beginning of days or end of life. When the Levitical priesthood started, and it's not yet begun, okay? But when the Levitical priesthood started, tracing your lineage was everything. You could not be a priest unless you were of the tribe of Levi. The Levite tribe was designated to be priests of God. You remember after they were taken off in exile, the children of Israel, when they came out of exile, uh, they had lost records and, and genealogies and that sort of thing. If you could not prove that you were of the tribe of Levi, you could not be a priest. You were barred from being a priest forever. And if you go to Numbers, I think, chapter 8, it specifically says very plainly that a priest had to be of the tribe of Levi, and they would serve for a specific period of time. They would have to be from 25 years of age until 50. 25 all the way to 50. They didn't serve a day less, and they didn't serve a day more. Mandatory retirement at the age of 50, okay? So when we think about Melchizedek, it says he's without father or mother. Does that mean that he was, he was not born of woman, that he just appeared? No, it's just not recorded, okay? He just doesn't have any genealogy recorded. Without beginning of days or end of life. This phrase, end of life, is, is sort of interesting. Um, what I believe the Hebrew writer is saying we have no record of when he began to be a priest. See, uh, the Levitical priesthood started when you were 25, 
and it ended when you were 50. But we don't have any record of that for Melchizedek. So he's without beginning of days, the beginning of, of his priesthood. We don't know. And we also don't know when it ended. It's just not recorded for us. Okay? Notice this. It says, resembling the Son of God. He resembles the Son of God, not the other way around. Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, but Melchizedek is resembling the Son of God, and he remains a priest forever. That word forever there is, is, is not, I mean, Melchizedek's not still a priest. He died, okay? He was a mortal man. But he, he is a priest forever in the sense that we don't know of, of when he stopped being a priest. There was no end of his duration of a priest as we know it. So the Hebrew writer is saying, um, without beginning of days or end of life, he remains a priest forever. We just don't have any of that recorded. We don't know. So, let's go back to Genesis chapter 14. This is, this is so fun. This is when you Google something and you start finding all kind of cool things out. Genesis chapter 14. God tells Abraham to go. He's going to make a, a great nation of him. Uh, he takes his family. You know, he and Lot separate. Uh, they, Abraham, Abraham says, hey, uh, we're, too, we're too big. We're too numerous. We can't live together. Uh, you decide. And Lot looks out, and he sees this is a choice land, and he says, I'm going to take that. So he and Abraham separate. Lot goes, and he winds up living in um, a city called Sodom. We, we understand Sodom and Gomorrah. We know what happened to them in Scripture. But here we have a, a place where these uh, Canaanite kings are going to war with each other. There are five kings going to battle with four kings. So let's see where, where we want to pick up. Uh, let, let's look at verse 5. Genesis chapter 14, the word of the Lord. In the 14th year, Ketilomer the, and the kings allied, allied with him went out and defeated the, Rephi, the Rephites in Ashtoreth, Carnium, the Zuzites in Ham, the Emites in Shava, Kiriathim, and the Horites in the hill country of Seir, as far as, far as El Paran near the desert. Why did I start in verse 5 with all of those names? I could have started anywhere. But I started there. Verse 7, Then they turned back and they went to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and they conquered the whole territory of the Amalekites, as well as the Amorites who were living in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, marched out and drew up their battle lines in the valley of Sidon against Keterlomar, the king of Elam, titled the king of Goim, Amraphel, the king of Shinar, and Arioch, the king of Eleazar. Four kings against five. So they had this battle. Um, the four, verse 11, the four kings seized all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and then they went away. They also carried off Abraham's nephew Lot and his possessions since he was living in Sodom. One who had escaped came and reported this to Abram, 
the Hebrew. Now Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household, and he went in pursuit as far as them. That says something about Abram right there. He has 318 trained men born in his household. It says something about how great and how powerful and how wealthy Abram had, had become. Verse 15, during the night, Abram divided his men to attack them, and he routed them, pursuing them as far as Hobah, north of Damascus. He recovered all the goods, and he brought back his relative Lot and his possessions, together with the women and the other people. Let's see if I've got a... Yeah, i got a little map here, if you can see this. So this is the area that we're talking about here. This is, this is what it would have looked like before the children of Israel went into the land of Canaan and conquered, okay? You've got um, the Hivites in the far north, the Girgashites, the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Jebusites here. This is Jerusalem. This is Jerusalem. This was Jebusite territory. This is where Abram is going to come into contact with uh, Melchizedek. So he takes his 318 trained men, which kind of blows my mind. We've just seen a battle, five kings versus four kings. And surely they had a lot of men. You would think hundreds, probably thousands of men have gone to battle. But Abram, with 318 trained men, he goes back, he rescues Lot, he takes back all of the people that they took, and he takes back all the goods. So he's carrying all that loot, all that booty that they have uh, taken, and he comes back. And in verse 17, after Abram returned from defeating Keterlomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is, the king's valley. Look at verse 18. Then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram the God by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hands. <clears throat> now, it was not uncommon for the Canaanite, uh, the Canaanite people to, that worship many gods, false gods, it was not uncommon for them at all to call their God the creator of heaven and earth or to, or to call their God the God of uh, the most high God. That would not have been uncommon at all. But when we look at what Abram says, verse 22, Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, Yahweh, God most high, creator of heaven and earth. So he recognizes that what Melchizedek is saying uh, is about Yahweh, the God Most High, which is really kind of interesting here at this time because this is a Jebusite, uh, Jebusite territory here where the city of Salem is, the ancient city of Jerusalem. And here you have a man who comes out who's not only king, but he's priest. People that do name studies and word studies 
say that the name Melchizedek is a Semitic name. It's a name that would be of, of the Hebrew people. You understand that God started all of this with Abraham. Before Abraham, there were just people, right? Just people groups. There were no Hebrews. There were no Jews. They were just people. But God started with a man named Abram because he had faith. And he set him apart and he said, because of you, through you and through your seed, I'm going to bless all people. And he, and he gave him a covenant, the covenant of circumcision, right? That separated him from all the other people, people that we call Gentiles. So Abram is the beginning of this Hebrew nation. They say that the, the name Melchizedek is akin to that Semitic language. So it's, it's, it's odd to me that a man that may not even have been among that tribe, those kind of people, winds up being a king and a priest in the city of Salem. That kind of even adds to the myth, I think, of Melchizedek. So Abram goes, and with 318 men, the kings of the north, uh, the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah were routed by the northeastern kings, and Abram comes, and he pursues, and he gets back Lot. He gets back all of his stuff, and then the king of Sodom comes out, and then Melchizedek comes out and blesses Abram. He brings out bread and wine. Now, the first thing we think about probably this morning is we just took the Lord's Supper, the bread and the wine. I don't think that that has anything to do with what Melchizedek was doing. That was just a very common uh, food that they would, would eat. He brings out bread and he brings out wine, and apparently they share that together. And look at what Abram does. Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Abraham took tithe, a tenth of everything that he had just reclaimed, all of that loot that had been stolen in, in the route by the kings. Abraham gives Melchizedek a tenth of that. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and I've taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I will accept nothing but what my men have eaten and the share that belongs to the men who went with me, to Anair, Eshcol, and Mamre. Let them have their share. So Abram says, I'm not, no, I'm not going to accept anything from you. I don't, want to, I don't want anybody to say that I'm beholden to them, and somehow now you're my king. So he says he, he won't take that. But notice that Melchizedek, that Abram gives Melchizedek a tenth now, this is long before the Levitical priesthood, okay? Um, this is long before that. We don't want to go there yet. So here we have a, a guy that's a king and a priest in this ancient city of Salem, and he winds up giving, um, Abram winds up giving him a tenth of everything. Now, the Levites, they received a tithe 
from um, the people, their fellow Israelites. I think I've got a, I want to show you this. Notice, these are the tribes of Israel that went in and when they conquered the land, when they crossed over the Jordan, uh, Joshua took them into the promised land. These are where all the, the tribes settled. Uh, Manasseh, Naphtali, Asher, uh, Reuben, Dan, Simeon, Judah. Do, do you know who's not up there? Levi. Why? They were given no inheritance. They were given no land. They were set apart to be priests. So God told the people to give a tithe to the, to the Levites so that they would be able to survive. That was their portion. God says, I am your portion. And so the, the Levites received a tithe from their own brothers because that's how they lived. They didn't have land to produce uh, corn and crops and, and to raise cattle. They served as priests. So you don't see them up here because they didn't have any territory. They served as priests. So they received tithes. And so now we see Melchizedek receiving a tithe. And so he blesses Abraham. Who blesses whom? Does the lesser bless the greater, or does the greater bless the lesser? The greater gives a blessing to the lesser, right? So this is what the text is saying. This is what the Hebrew writer is telling us. Abraham, now think about Abram. Think about Abraham. Abraham was the father of the Israelites. He was, he was, he was everything. We talk about Father Abraham. God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? So when you think about the Jews, the Israelites, all of their history, they, they go all the way back to Abraham, Father Abraham. He is the father of the faithful. We read in Hebrews chapter 11, but we'll come to that in a few weeks. Abraham is lauded as that picture of faith. Here you have Abraham giving a tithe to Melchizedek. So what does that say about their relationship? Melchizedek is the greater. Abraham is the lesser. Abraham's less than Melchizedek? Yeah. In the scheme of this, that's what the Hebrew writer is setting up for us. And this plays so well into what we're studying on Wednesday nights about how all of the Old Testament is, is fair game to point to the Messiah. To, to point to Jesus, and that's what, exactly what the Hebrew writer here is doing. Just think how great he was. This is Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 4. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of Levi who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they are also descended from Abraham. The people had to bring a tithe. Otherwise, the Levites would have starved to death. When they brought sacrifices, you remember the priest, when they offered sacrifices, the priest would take a portion of that to feed himself and his family. Um, and that tithe is how they survived. We've looked at that. Notice this. 
One might even say, this is fascinating to me, okay? One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, that's the priesthood, Levi paid the tenth through Abraham because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. (laughs) Are you following that? Does, Does this make any sense to you? Okay, Abraham was promised that he would have a son, a son of promise, um, when he was 75 years old. It took 25 years for God to make good on that promise. He was always going to make good on it. If God makes a promise, it's going to happen. Sarah tried to work things out with her handmaiden, and they wound up having Ishmael. That didn't turn out so good. Um, They didn't do it the way God wanted. Finally, they uh, have a son in their old age, and she bears a son, and they name him Isaac. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and then Isaac was the father of Jacob and Esau. We know all that that happened with Jacob and Esau. Jacob then had 12 sons that we know as the, the 12 tribes of Israel. So this meeting, this chance meeting between priest and patriarch back in Genesis 14 happened years and years and years before Levi was ever born. Are you following me? But the Hebrew writer says, in essence, tongue-in-cheek, we might even say that Levi, who was born all these many years later, even Levi who was a priest, paid a tithe to Melchizedek. That's how great Melchizedek was. Because when his great-great-great-grandfather, whatever, when Abram gave the tenth to Melchizedek, Levi was, was in his loins, was in his body. Do you find that the least bit humorous? I do. And why would a Jew... In the first century, look at this, like what the Hebrew writer is depicting, and say that, yeah, I guess that's true. Levi, I guess in essence, Levi paid a, a, a tithe to Melchizedek because Abraham did. And so even though he's many, many generations down the line, in essence, he did as well. What the Hebrew writer is, is saying is that that's how awesome Melchizedek is, okay? Because Abraham, Father Abraham even paid a tithe to him. And so now he's setting the stage. He's setting, where's my clicker? He's setting the stage for uh, what's going to happen. Oh, that was it. He's setting the stage for what's going to happen when he likens, he says that Melchizedek resembles the Son of God. How does he do that? Well, we're going to talk about that next week about how Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is fascinating stuff. Hopefully we we won't take too long, but we're going to look at uh, being a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek, exactly what that means as it relates to Jesus. And Jesus is a priest forever, still reigning today.